Hey, before we get into the episode, I want to update you guys that we just announced Starting Small Summit 2024. We launched Starting Small Summit in 2022 with an amazing panel of founders. We flew in for a live event that carried on to 2023, and now we're excited to do our third annual event this year in the Midwest. So make sure to click the link in this description so you can find more information on that and find more about our speakers and enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Jake Kalick of Maiden, delivering stainless steel, nonstick, carbon steel, knives, plates, and glasses directly to your door at honest prices. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Jake Kalick of Maiden. Jake, thank, thank you so much for joining me today. Appreciate you having me on, Cameron. Good to talk to you. Of course. So I'd like to start out with uh, your upbringing. Uh, where did you grow up? And what would you say your childhood was like? So I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, um, where Maiden was um, eventually founded. Um, yeah, I grew up a uh, close-knit family in downtown Boston uh, around food in our family business, which is kind of the origin story of Maiden. Uh, family has a food service equipment business mm. uh, that built and outfitted commercial kitchens. So um, I was like the classic family business kid, you know, spent uh, weekends, school vacations and summers helping out around the family business and kind of learning it from my earliest years mm -hmm. uh, and kind of grew into it. Amazing. Yeah, I would love for, for you to kind of elaborate on life growing up, especially in like the food industry, cooking industry. What did that look like for you? What, what was your involvement like growing up in the family business? Yeah, so, you know, I, I got to see firsthand, um, you know, what it was like working with the restaurant industry. I think that's where I, I kind of first fell in love with it. Uh, you talk to people that work in restaurants or around restaurants. They're a very special breed. Uh, they kind of catch the bug at some point and um, kind of fall in love with it. Uh, my my perspective of that industry was kind of, I guess, through my dad's lens. Uh, he was, you know, designing, building and outfitting kitchens all across Boston and beyond. Mm. Um, so we would go out to dinner and meet the chefs and the restaurant owners and support the restaurant openings and uh, kind of got to see that firsthand and kind of all the the fun that goes along with that industry. Um, so yeah, that, that's where I learned about the restaurant industry. That's where I fell in love with it um, mm -hmm. and kind of always worked in it. Incredible. I saw you went on to study at uh, Cornell. Um, what did you end up studying there and kind of what were some of your aspirations going into university at that time? Yeah, no surprises. I studied uh, hospitality there. I went to the hotel school. Uh, they have a program there for, you know, uh, graduating high schoolers that want to pursue a career in hospitality. Mm -hmm. um, so restaurants, hotels, real estate, um, all kind of with that slant. Uh, I knew I wanted to go get the best hospitality education I could um, mm -hmm. and take that and go on and work with my family. So uh, I went in there. I, I got to go to school with um you know, um, students that are now doing awesome things in the hospitality industry. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of my classmates, um, I've leaned on heavily for help with my business today. Um, yeah. And it was kind of the starting of my network, which has been really fruitful. Mm, amazing. What does kind of studying, especially in the hospitality space, what does that mean for maybe like internships or what does like hands-on learning look like for that? Because I know that could be an expedited thing. If you, you land a big internship, were you working at the family business in school or what, what did that look like? Yeah, you know, I, I did stay pretty close to the family 
the business. I also spent a little bit of time working in kitchens uh, yeah. and, and um, you know, working in restaurants uh, in some of my summers as well. Um, yeah, but at the end of the day, it was a business school, everything um, with the with the perspective of insulin of hospitality, right? So yeah. if you're going to an undergrad business education, you were studying accounting, you were studying corporate finance, you were studying organizational behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this program, all of the case studies were through the lens of restaurants, hotels, and real estate. Um, yep. So it was really the same foundational uh, education, just um, kind of geared towards the hospitality world. For sure. So yeah, uh, following graduation and then prior to Maiden as well, what does this kind of this next career step look like for you? Did you go directly into the family business or what did that next role look like? Yeah, I mean, from from my perspective, I wanted to go work for somebody else first. I, yeah. I knew eventually the end goal would be working with my family, but um, I wanted to go uh, learn from somebody else and and spend some time not not doing that. So yeah. I, I moved to New York City and got to work for an awesome um, uh, company called Avero. Um, they at the time were a small boutique, um, almost like consulting firm for for restaurants and hotels. They mm. focused on performance management. So what you would do is um you know, Avera would get access to all of your data um, across your multiple units of your restaurant group or your hotel group um, and help you figure out how to more efficiently operate um, everything from, you know, your 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 servers in the dining room to your menu mix to the revenue generated and looking to trends um, mm-hmm. across your business. So um, my role is kind of a consultant of sorts. Um, yep. I took the data from our data team and our engineers and worked with the hotel operators and restaurant operators to help improve their business. Um, and for me, it was a crash course on working with some of the you know, world's best restaurateurs and hoteliers. Like yep. we were working with Four Seasons Hotels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were working with Danielle Balud, you know, um, all of the kind of like best in class. So when you're 22, 23 years old, to be able to work with those types of restaurants and yeah. meet those personalities and see how they run their operations was an awesome experience. And I think only got me to fall in love with the industry more. Mm, I love it. It's such an incredible experience. Young, what what does this next step look like for you? Did you end up going from to the family business from here? Or what, what does that look like from there? Yeah, I eventually got, and 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 I say eventually, it was rather quickly after after yeah. a couple of years, got called back to um, Boston to work with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was it was my time to come in and and kind of do my my first couple of years. Um, from my perspective, it was um, come in, you know, work for my family, uh, see how I could pitch in with what I had learned, um, not just in school, but kind of with my most recent roles and. Um, try to put my my stamp on what they were doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up working for five years there, um, learning a lot, um, having a lot of fun, um, and I think kind of bringing some modernization to a hundred year old business. Yeah. Um, but eventually decided to pursue my own opportunity, and that's where I teamed up with my childhood best friend Chip um, mm. and started Made In, where I'm at today. Incredible! I would love to hear kind of that turning point towards starting your own venture, along with united with chip what what does his background look like for you guys to unite and start really getting into the kitchenware space yeah so so chip i i'd known since um we were three years old we met in nursery school um <laughs> I, I don't even remember uh the first time we had met but but my mom recounts the story um we were at a, a three-year-old birthday party and there was there was a clown uh <laughs> there was a clown i guess grilling the 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 children on on basic math problems you know like having everyone sit around and he was entertaining the group and my mom remembered there was one kid that was just like nailing every question and and my mom was like who who is this kid and how does how is he so good at math and fast forward you know 30 years later he's my my co-founder uh chip's background is in math computer science and 
and e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, has spent his career um, building brands online and and, mm. and really understanding performance marketing and, and growth of, of, of businesses online. So, um, you know, Chip spent his time after college um, working for digitally native brands, um, kind of learning on their dimes, um, everything from inventory planning to performance marketing to e-commerce, conversion, growth, omni-channel marketing, mm-hmm. um, kind of all of the things that I don't know. I, I bring kind of the the knowledge of the product and the culinary side of the business. Chip brings, yeah. you know, how it comes to life online and how to how to grow a business like that online. Mm. So, um, you know, I remember I was sitting at my desk in my family business. Um, it must have been when I was, you know, 27 years old, 28 years old. Uh, yeah. And I got a call from Chip, who I knew was looking to make a move out of where he was working. Um, he had been doing it for several years, and and we were still in very close contact. We yeah. see each other regularly socially. Um, and he said, hey, listen, you know, I want to go do my own thing. I want to start my own business. Um, and I was trying to figure out what to do. And I was on Bed Bath & Beyond's website, and I was looking at all the subheaders and going across from bedding to mattresses to, you know, all of these categories and realized they were all falling to direct to consumer digitally native disruptor type brands yeah. you know um but then when i got to kitchen i realized that hadn't happened yet mm. and there weren't disruptive e-commerce brands in the kitchen space at this time this was in 2016 yep um and he said you know are there any are there any legs to this idea like is this something i should be doing i know you sell kitchen supplies and equipment and you know your family sells cookware and knives and all the categories that you would buy it at um at, at Bed Bath and Beyond, yep. should should we look into this? And it immediately resonated with me um, for two reasons. Um, one was nobody really had any loyalty to brands in the kitchen space. Mm. Um, you were living in a time that you know people were obsessed with food media, with recipes, with sourcing the perfect recipes, and going to restaurants and following chefs on Instagram, yep. watching food TV. Yet there was like a total disconnect in the tools people were using to mm. make these meals, right? So there was a, a huge opportunity to capture all of the loyalty in the kitchen tool space. Yeah. Um, so that was particularly exciting. The other side that I got to see from my work experience was just how antiquated the industry and the incumbents were um, and how, you know, for lack of a better term, asleep at the wheel, a lot of these operators were, a lot of these brands were. Um, they weren't, you know, um, keeping up with, you know, the 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 new consumer needs. They weren't being innovative with product. They mm. weren't being innovative with marketing. They weren't engaging with the chef community. So, and there was just huge wholesale markups, right? So I yeah. saw the opportunity to really disrupt, you know, the, the the wholesale opportunity too. So so from my perspective, it was, yeah, it's a no-brainer. If we can build a brand that this modern day home cook can fall in love with, we can sell them everything from pots and pans to knives to plateware to glassware. And and that's where we really hit the ground running with trying to build our first supply chain. Incredible! I love to hear from, especially your your uh, POV on product initially. What did that product development look like at launch? What products did you want to launch with? Where were you sourcing? What does that background look like? Yeah, so so it's 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 pretty important for our story that that we wanted to go into many categories. Um, yeah. You know, in time, our our thesis was the reason why people didn't care about kitchen tools was because there weren't many brands that were doing multi-category well. Yeah. So if you were a shopper for high quality performance tools for the kitchen and dining room at this time, you would mm-hmm. walk into a Williams Sonoma, 
you would see all of the stainless steel cookware brands that they would sell. And those brands would only sell stainless steel cookware. They wouldn't yep. sell knives. They wouldn't sell wine glasses. They wouldn't sell enamel um, cookware. So then you would have to learn all the knife companies when you wanted to buy knives. And then mm -hmm. you would fall in love with the knife company. And there were 50 of them in there. And then yep. you couldn't buy any other categories from that company because all they made was knives. So it was like this whole kind of like you really had to care about kitchen tools to learn all of the players in all of these categories and then move on to the next one, right? Yeah. So our thing was like, hey, if we can build one brand that does everything with the right manufacturing ethos and makes the right quality product, we can do all of these categories and we can get a consumer in wine glasses. And you know, over time, through all of our marketing efforts, we can sell them nonstick cookware, we can sell them enamel cast iron, we can sell them carbon steel, and mm. they can become a made-in customer across their kitchen and dining room. Yep. So we knew that's where we wanted to get to. The question is, where do you start? Mm. And from my perspective, it was, what is the very core of the kitchen? Um, and what is the core of a commercial kitchen? And that's stainless clad cookware. Yep. It's, you know, uh, it's a stainless steel aluminum cladded cookware that you can use for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You can, you know, beat the heck out of, um, you can execute any type of dish with it. And the thing I was most excited about for that type of category was it was the type of product where if you bought the right version of it, you could see and feel and experience the difference in cooking versus yeah. the junky stuff you would buy at a big box store, right? For sure. So it's like, it's 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 really night and day between good and bad versions of these products. So if we made a good version of it, it would establish ourselves as a real player in the kitchen tool space. And then we would create the authority to go into all these other categories in time. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far around Jake's entrepreneurial journey. I'd like to pause and say thank you to this episode's mid-break sponsor, Mirkfist. Founded in 2016 with a clear vision, Mirkfist is all about crafting timeless, high-quality shoes at a reasonable price. How do they do it? Well, it's a blend of top-notch craftsmanship and commitment to keeping prices fair. The design magic happens in Stockholm, but the real artistry takes place in Portugal, where experienced artisans bring the shoes to life. From Oxfords to sneakers, boots to sandals, Mirkfist offers a diverse range of styles, all sharing a common denominator, timeless design. The secret, the Goodyear-welted construction ensuring durability that lasts for decades. No wonder they are named the fastest-growing footwear brand in Sweden in 2020. So, whether going to the office or strolling the streets in your community, Mirkfist has you covered in style. Elevate your footwear game without breaking the bank. Make sure to visit Mirkfist at mirkfist.com to explore their collection and step into premium craftsmanship without premium price tags. That's mirkfist.com and enjoy the rest of the episode. I, I know you guys kind of diversify between in-restaurant and also residential at launch, really focusing on e-commerce, selling online, were you guys focused on consumers in the home? Or what, what did that percentage look like at launch? Yeah, we were 100% focused and invested in working with consumers, yeah. um, home consumers. Um, I had done my time selling you know, this kind of stuff to commercial kitchens. And to me, the exciting, huge market opportunity was with home cooks. Yeah. Um, so we you know, really ignored the culinary community to start from a marketing perspective mm -hmm. um, and from a customer perspective. We inherently built these products to be chef quality because it's all we knew. We knew what all of these chefs were using in kitchens because it was what I'd been selling, but we, you know, were able to triangulate what this great product would be based on what chefs were using. But yeah. we really wanted to market them to home cooks. And the funniest thing was, fast forward a year later, you know, we had some chefs that were reaching out via Instagram saying, I see this stuff on Instagram, you're selling it to home cooks, but it looks like the kind of stuff I would want to use in my kitchen. Yeah. Can I try it? 
Um, and we would sell it to them and, you know, they would use it in their kitchens and they would love it and say, this stuff is the best cookware we've ever used in our kitchen. Mm -hmm. And, and it was kind of slowly getting an organic following in, in the culinary circles. Um, but it wasn't until we started marketing that chefs were using these products and mm. saw the improvement of all the metrics for home consumers that went along with it, yeah. uh, that we, the light kind of went off and was like, how stupid are we? that we were kind of ignoring chefs to start as customers and as kind of a marketing partner. Um, and in hindsight, we should have, you know, launched aggressively going after the culinary world as well. Um, yep. And so quickly we, you know, pivoted our strategy, um, you know, and, and, and we still are very heavily oriented towards home consumers, but yep. we have a fast growing, really dedicated kind of culinary side of the business um, that is the lifeblood of, of, of how we market and the stories we tell. For sure. Yeah, I think... A lot of people are aware, but people would be surprised how big the cooking community really is. I'm curious. I know you guys are built on heavy community, but what did marketing look like in those early days? Is it really visually displayed through cooking videos, how to's or what what do you find that works for selling like new products at launch? Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? Like, how yeah. do you how do you um, crack into that customer acquisition? Um, so from our perspective at launch, uh, what was most useful for us um was was getting well initially i think what was most useful was uh providing value to the customer right mm. so when you're super early on especially in 2017 2018 in the the heyday of the direct consumer movement it was yeah. hey you recognize that this has all of the quality and performance of the premium incumbents that are twice the amount of money because they sell through wholesale, we can yep. give it to you at 50% off, right? So we had this whole customer demographic and they skewed a little bit older for a direct consumer mm. brand because they were the customers that had gotten married, had registered for all clad, had been using it for 10, 15 years <laughs> and saw our product and said, wait a minute, like that looks like the stuff I've been using just at a much better price point. Yeah. And so those were kind of our first adopters, right? And it's not what you think of when you think of an Instagram marketing direct-to-consumer engine, right? You're, For sure. We were doing really well with the 40 and 50-year-old demographic, doing really <laughs> well in flyover states. Um, you know, it wasn't the 28-year-old female in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. So that was our first demo. Um, and then what we really learned was if you actually show that chefs use this in their kitchen, they're the ultimate ambassador to the product. Mm -hmm. um, they're the ultimate social proof. So once we started using chefs in marketing, um, it opened up all of our customers' eyes to like, hey, I love eating at that restaurant. If that pan is good enough for that chef, um, yeah. I want to use it in my house. Yeah. I would love to hear today, looking at some like logistically, what does that look like for you guys? So a customer orders, do you have a 3PL or are you shipping it from in-house or what does operations look like now? Yeah. Um, so we use a combination of both. We have a, a 3PL partner, so they fulfill product for us that we ship to them. But we also have our own fulfillment center that we okay. that we own and operate. Um, and our operations team did an incredible job standing up owned fulfillment. It's something that a lot of brands don't do or don't tackle. Yeah. Um, but from our perspective, um, we have pretty complex kitting operations, right? We ship a lot of our cookware in from France in bulk because it's actually cheaper to fit them in a container bulk packed than individually boxed. And then we kit them when it gets to our fulfillment center in San Antonio. Mm. Um, we also have, you know, big casino customers. Um, a casino might be opening with 24 different restaurants in it and they're buying all made in for all the restaurants, but they want things packaged a very specific 
specific way, yeah. palletized a specific way with certain labeling in a certain location. And we just couldn't trust a 3PL to do that fulfillment correctly. For sure. Um, so we stood up our own center. Um, that's a lot of kidding and more complex fulfillment um, in San Antonio. And then we still rely on 3PL partners that you know have simpler, more you know fulfillment type roles um, just to be closer to pockets of customers. Yeah. Looking at kind of the SKUs today, uh, you kind of describe, describe the demographic, but what would you say percentage-wise is residential and commercial now uh, looking at Made In? Yeah, we're, we're, we're nearly 90% or, or a little bit over 90% residential, okay. uh, 10% commercial. Uh, that being said, like it's been a recent initiative of ours, probably the last two years of our of our six-year business yeah. has been focusing on growing the commercial side of the business. So we've got a great team here. We sell in-house directly to these restaurants and hotels and casinos. Um, and that's a really fast-growing part of our business. And um, we are big believers that we can disrupt the commercial food service business and mm -hmm. supply business um, almost more so than we were able to do with, with the home consumer business. Yeah. Well, looking at uh, Made In today, what would you say differentiates your products from competitors? I, I know you touched on just a long history and family heritage. Uh, you guys have high status customers in casino and Michelin star restaurants. So what would you say is those main differentiations? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, we talk about this a lot, but yeah. you know, we knew when we were launching the business back in 2017, we were the first movers in, in, in digitally native kitchen wares, right? Mm -hmm. But we knew it would be a lot of fast followers. Um, yeah. We saw the writing on the wall with what was happening in all these other, you know, D2C categories. There was going to be several players very quickly in the direct-to-consumer pots and pans space, right? Yeah. Um, so from our perspective, um, if you were to tell us seven years later, there is 15 different brands out there, but we still are the only chef-quality, high-performance, you know, made from the best raw materials in the U.S. and Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And everyone else is playing in the color, pop color, Instagram yep. kind of marketing world. True. We'd be incredibly happy with how this is shaken out, right? Yeah. So we really know what our angle is. It's, hey, we work with the best raw materials, with the best factories that have, you know, centuries of, of, of heritage in making these products. Like our knife manufacturers, seventh generation. Our glassware manufacturers, 11th generation. Wow. Like these are crazy, crazy, crazy family businesses yeah. um, that because of our heritage in my family business, we're able to forge relationships with and, and work with them to make this product. Mm. Um, so we've really created this moat around our brand where it's high performing products that's good enough for, to your point, like the best Michelin star kitchens, but also yep. you know for your home as well. Um, and that's really how we've positioned ourselves. Um, so we are hyper-focused on raw materials, um, making sure that we're creating utilitarian, high-performing tools that um, stand up to the job and don't just look good online, right? Yep. Incredible. Well, Jake, I'd like to conclude uh, each episode with this. If you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, what would you say that would be? Yeah. Um, listen, I would say one of the hardest things for me to learn and I'm still getting better at is is really just learning how to say no to opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, especially one of a growing business, there's no shortage of opportunities that come your way, partnerships, people that want to pitch you ideas, yep. um, or ways you can get distracted in running your day-to-day -day business. And for the longest time you try to say yes to everything or you try to make everything work. I think the sooner you can get comfortable with saying no quickly and recognizing when things aren't the right opportunity and 
kind of respectfully cutting them off or, you know, just, you know, being kind about it, but saying, you know what, this isn't a priority for the business right now. Mm. Like the easier it is to run your business and the more opportunity you have things to more opportunity you have to do things that can really, you know, be a value add to what you're trying to do. For sure. Well, Jake, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Made In at madeincookware.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.